to use a gambling analogy, you have to you have to be able to to run the business uh, with with like you know the kind of inside bets, and then those outside bets you have to be willing to place those in a different way. Um, and that's where I think my background in sales and having success in, in software sales served me well because when you're doing that kind of like enterprise solution selling, much like being a teacher, there's 15 people in the room that are all going to learn differently. They're all going to hear what you say differently. Your job is to connect to all of them. Uh, when you're doing solution selling and you're selling like a you know large enterprise deal, there's a bunch of constituents involved from budgeting to procurement to the person making the decision to the influencer. And they're all buying the product for different reasons and for different parts of the product. And, and that approach uh, of, of being adaptable uh, is, is important. It's just that, you know, it's that fine line between being adaptable and, adaptable and, and losing your conviction or being wishy-washy. And, and that's, that's, that's a challenge. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Scott Simonelli is the founder and CEO of Veritonic, one of the industry's leading audio research and analytics companies that provides marketing intelligence for sound. Veritonic were the pioneers in online testing and optimization, helping marketers make data-driven decisions about websites and user experience when they're struggling for guidance. Scott was also VP of sales at Optimost and played an instrumental role in the company's acquisition. I really love the fact that he came from a family of really hardworking entrepreneurs, and his father was in the deli business in good old New Jersey. He saw how hard his parents worked and the roller coaster life of an entrepreneur. I started off by asking my first question about growing up and what it was like watching his parents as entrepreneurs and how that led him to a successful career as his own entrepreneur. Sure. Uh, yeah, and I think there's two two aspects that have been present my entire life. One of them is music, which is a big part of the audio focus of Veritonic, and and that's been something that has just kind of just been in me since I was born. But I also like been exposed to in the right way, which we can which we can get into. And then on the other side was really the entrepreneurial piece. You know, I think seeing two parents who were working, you know, in different ways around me. My father owned his own business, and my mother worked a bunch of different jobs growing up, and and for many years, uh, just recently retired. So, you know, I think just seeing all that was, was a big part of it. Just those two things together is a big part of being an entrepreneur and, and being so focused on sound and, and audio. Yeah. T- tell me about the sound part first, because for those of you, obviously most of you listening on audio and not a clip, there's like four or five guitars on the wall behind, behind Scott. Where did that come from? That love, that passion and any significance on the guitars? Uh, no, there's more than four or five in this room. There's only four or five you can see. But I think that it's, it's a funny thing, actually, my family had an old piano that was just always in the room that, and never had a piano lesson or anything like that it was just there. So just like there's something to be said for all you families out there who've got that piano that's just been sitting around, it's out of tune in the corner, leave it there. You just never know. And then the other thing is my father actually found uh, a guitar in the garbage. And it was like sitting on the curb. This is what people do in North Jersey is they just put their stuff out on the curb and people take it. 
And he just came home one day with his guitar. And I was like, that's cool. <laughs> and you know, the rest is history. And I've been writing songs and writing music since I was five or six years old. And, and I always saw the, the instruments as a means to an end for me in, in creating music. And again, that's entrepreneurial too, like getting somebody to kind of, when you write something or as an artist or as a composer, it's like you're, you're trying to connect with somebody about something that you're feeling and that you either they feel too, or you want them to feel too. And I always saw it that way, but yeah, just finding guitar in the garbage. And again, it's just, it's that, it's that scrappiness, right? It's that, that's a very entrepreneurial thing. It's like, oh, here's a musical instrument. I'm just going to bring it home. You never know. I mean, that's, that's something that, uh, that's how that started. (laughs) You got to love it. Uh, just how, how that works and how all of a sudden just your dad bringing that home and take, could have walked by, could have done anything. And it becomes such a big part of your life. And I know another big part of your life was, was watching your dad with his business and, and your mom assisting in many ways. What was that like? And what'd you learn? Yeah, seeing somebody, my father, um, I was too young to see this, this actual part of it. He was, he was the youngest manager ever to work in an Acme supermarket. So again, New Jersey thing, you've seen an Acme supermarket, you know, and he was frustrated there and then just went and opened his own liquor store, uh, just on his own and, and rented some space and did it. And that seeing him like own his own business and deal with all the ups and downs and all the things that every startup deals with was an amazing thing to be a part of. And then, and then bringing it home, like he'd come home and my mother would do the bookkeeping at night and uh, he would get up at five in the morning. And it was just like, it was a, it was an all day, all encompassing thing. All the people uh, who were part of, of that community, you know, were kind of like family. It was just a very much like starting, you know, like doing a startup where you're kind of immersed in it. And that was you know, everything I knew uh, at that point. And he adjusted over the years. So it started as a liquor store and then eventually he opened a deli inside the, the space in that liquor store, which was, again, diversification as big liquor stores came out. And, you know, there was a lot of other things he did along. I could be here the whole podcast talking about the, the trajectory of, of that business. And, you know, then there was getting the lottery license. And, uh, and then eventually, when I, by the time I was in college, he was selling that business and selling the liquor license and the lottery license and these things. So I saw, I saw the whole journey from leaving the big company to, to start a business, diversifying that business, adapting to the times and your customers. You know, there's also two colleges in that town. So there was, there was catering. And then as, as more office buildings opened up, he, he did that, uh, you know, and so like, and then eventually to the point where it's like, okay, like I've got to, you know, is it time to get out? I mean, so yeah, that, that whole thing is, is you don't know it at the time because no one explicitly states it. And I think, you know, my father, a lot of what he was doing was maybe not as cerebral or kind of like, mapped out and, and like, you know, there's no board of it, you know, where he always sat down like, okay, this is what we're going to do in Q2 to like overcome deregulization of liquor, you know, or whatever in the state, like he just had to react and, and figure out how to do it. And that's, uh, was a great lesson to be a part of. Oh, it must've been. I mean, just to see that first off from, you know, I've noticed in terms of the entrepreneurs we've had on this show that, that there's one thing in common not necessarily about their parents, but a lot learn it from parents or relatives or, but it's about that drive, that persistence, picking yourself off the mat every single day. And it sounds like, especially owning a deli and having to go in and be there. I take it your dad was one of those people who there weren't sick days, you know, or, or calling out. It was hard work, effort, which you got to see every single day. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's, 
all the unknown things that can happen, right? That you just can't predict. It could be an employee stealing from the cash register or a pipe breaks or whatever. But also when we would like go away for the weekend or go somewhere, like who's watching the store? You know, it's like, it's like, there's no, there's no like put your out of office greeting on in that way. And, and, you know, or you close the store, you have to trust somebody to, to run it and, and pay. Like you're losing money when you go away. Right. And that's like, the, again, just like, to, to understand that firsthand, like at a young age, you start to see that like, oh, wait a second, like either there's no way you're, you're losing money either way when, as soon as you leave. Right. So like, that's, that's like, you don't think of things that it's not somebody else's problem. It's never somebody else's problem either. And that's the, those are all things that even if you weren't an entrepreneur or starting a new business, those are just a way to approach academics, a way to approach sports, a way to oppose practicing guitar, a way to approach uh, starting a business. Those are that that sense of ownership, you know, is is hard to replicate. That, you know, for, and I would say, like, if people are starting a business or thinking about this or toying with the idea, like, think about that. Like, think about like what it feels like to have that. It's kind of like when we first we have four kids, but before we had kids, we had a dog. You know, and as soon as you get a dog, you can't just up and walk out of the house. Right? Somebody's got to can't just leave the dog there. And so, like, that starts to get you into that mindset of wait a second, like, I can't just pick up and go to England tomorrow, somebody's got to watch the dog. And that's like, that's a baby step, no pun intended, towards the responsibility of what it means to have a child. And, and like that ownership of as soon as I leave this place, I'm losing money is, is a mentality that like a lot of people don't have when they, when they go to work every day. Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, nowadays I could get up and leave my family and uh, teenagers, but I cannot leave my dog. <laughs> so I'm stuck. Uh, but uh, in any case, seeing your dad, Going through that, the ups, the downs, and, and really, you know, like you said, and especially back in those days, uh, much more of those businesses were cash businesses. And I find I have some of the most respect for entrepreneurs like your father who own small businesses, whether it was liquor stores, delis, or restaurant owners. It, to me, as we see the world we live in now, where there's VC and there's there's so many opportunities for so many Americans as opposed to when our parents were were growing up and it was about I have a similar story where it was really about survival with a small little business and for you it sounds like that played a big part in your life seeing this day in and day out and how did it affect what you wanted to do when you were going through school and coming out of school, did it impact what you were thinking about as a career? Yeah, well, certainly. I, I think the, the, the kind of main drivers there are just like, if you see a situation where you're exposed to how everything works, right? Like, so like, like I, I always like to take things apart, you know, or kind of like, you know, I was the kid who got the toy and then took it apart. If I got a bike, I took it apart. Because like seeing that hands-on experience and like and being around that, um, that's one thing I do worry about today is that the, you know my children don't don't have the kind of visibility into into what I do. And for a lot of people, I'm sure it's just the guys talking. I don't know what dad does. He just talks on Zoom. He talks on Zoom all day, exactly. You know, or whatever. Like so, it's like that's like seeing that. Like seeing the cat. You point out cash. Like that's something where it's like you learn. I learned about profit margins. I learned about. You know, all these different things. So I was like, oh, dad, you're selling a sandwich for $5. It's like, yeah, but I'm not making $5. You know, it's just like, I'm like, what? How does that work? You know, like, well, he's like, I got to buy the cold cuts. I got to buy the lettuce. I got to 
pay for the rent. You know, I got to do that. You know, this, and and so like, but also seeing the landlord. So my father didn't own the building, so the landlord was kind of an albatross on the business. And so like that was one of those things. As I as I went to school, as I kind of think about what I wanted to do, one thing I did know and kind of living through that was like I didn't want to work for somebody. Mm. And that was just like partly idolizing my dad because he was the boss for better, again, for better or worse. But it was just like seeing in that world, it's like you didn't want to be anybody else in that movie other than the person who owned the store. Because for the people who, by the way, for the other people who think about entrepreneurship and things like that, the harder road, sometimes there's less responsibility, but the person has to work in that store. Like the person who has to like, that's, that's, that's a whole nother level of not being in control of your own destiny. And so seeing that, one thing I knew is that I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. I didn't want to be the person who worked in the store that, for, all the, for all the trouble. Like yeah, that'd be worse, uh, I think, in my mind. And so I kind of always approached it from that way. And then my, my parents sent me to private school for high school. And you know, I was the younger of, of my mom was, had a big family. She was the youngest of 13. My father, it was, we had a lot of cousins, like, you know, and then people around. But like, and I was the youngest. And like, I think they wanted a little more for me and like seeing them be able to pay for school, like also from you bring up school, like, you know, like that, that made me take it more seriously. And believe me, I heard every day how much it cost, uh, you know? And so I appreciated the opportunity to go to, to a private school for high school. And, and I definitely made a point of like, and, and, and kind of being in that environment made me focus on leadership and focus on being somebody, you know, who was kind of in a, in a, in a leadership role. So that was a big part of it too. And all, and feeling the gravity of it. Like, I don't want to squander this opportunity, you know, my parents didn't go to college and here I am going to a private high school. Like this is, this is, uh, I should take advantage of this. Yeah. You know, it's really amazing. And, and I'm sure how grateful you are to them in, in a lot of situations. I come from a similar situation where my mom didn't go to college. My dad, maybe for a couple semesters and, but they stress the education on the next generation. I mean, I didn't, that, that's the opportunity that that's the opportunity in America, especially at that time. Oh, and for your dad to see him to work that hard, your mom and to put that money into you going to a a private school. So you can hopefully, I'm sure in their minds do better for lack of better word than them. It's pressure, but it's also, it also has to make you just appreciate the opportunity you were given. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot, our, that generation, I think we might be of a similar generation. You know, I think the, that, that generation of immigrants where like, people were getting their first crack at it, it's really the Irish and Italian immigrants that probably came to the East Coast and whatever. My father was born in 1940. So like, you know, like that, that's a very common path, I think. Yeah. And there's different, different immigrants in other countries that have kind of come in and are that version of that now. But I think that's, that's something that I think you always want your, your children to, to do better or have better opportunities than, than you did. But as it relates to this podcast and kind of entrepreneurship, it's getting those opportunities and betting on yourself, right? Because that's the, the you kind of, that generation kind of had to do that. Yeah. And whether they went to college or didn't go to, whatever they did, they were, they were the first to do it. Yep. Right. It's not like my father had his father right. to look at. His father came from Italy and, and, but you know, they saw the version of it was this person came from another country, didn't speak this language, and then made it for themselves here. Which again, if you're looking the rear, that was way harder. So you know, like he had it way better than his father, and then here I am. So like, I think you know, the question is where does that where does that stop? Because I think like I think like as we go through maybe a tougher economy now or COVID or these other things, 
where's that headwind now for people starting a business? And that's it's a different set of challenges because access to capital is, is much easier on some level. And certainly most people go to college now, like that's changed a lot. As I see my son kind of getting that level, like the amount of people applying to college is up, Lord knows how much. Um, we got, we have a problem with student debt, you know, so it's like, there's a lot of people going to college. So it's like, you know, I don't know where those challenges are today. I think what ends up happening is there's a lot more noise. Yeah. There's a lot more people that look like they're being successful that are like Instagram successful and not actually successful. And that's, Again, if you're listening to a podcast like this, if you're trying to get those nuggets, those things, if you're trying to learn and you're a student and a teacher of, of just trying to be better every day, you know, look for those things that are, that are tangible and real versus the thing you, you thought you read on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's, I think the difference today is, is it may seem easier, but it's, it's actually not. Yeah. And I think that's very difficult too, you know, as we talk about it, both having children and kids and, and you see it's the what's real and what's not and Instagram influencers and making this and there's no easy ticket. Like any entrepreneur I've ever talked to from a lot of famous entrepreneurs that they were going to go bankrupt five times or, you know, they, there's never that when you see it so much today, it's so prevalent on social media, like just do this, do this, follow my, but like, as you know, and as you witness, and as you've gone through yourself, it's hard work and it, there, there's really, there's no easy way, no matter what I've ever seen. There might be an easy way when you win the lottery, but I was thinking to myself the other day, it's like, yeah, you win that lottery, but think of the billions of people who lost, right? That, that, that's a crapshoot. But you know, I want to talk about you and, and watching your mom and dad and coming out of school and what was your approach? I know you said you wanted, you knew you wanted to be the boss and you wanted to run a, a business. Take me on your path coming out of school. Sure. It, and you know, I think as I kind of got to that place where for me, my being a boss and kind of running my own business was being in a band and being a musician and a composer. And that was, that was all I wanted to do other than play, play sports. You know, that was all I thought about. And so at the 11th hour, actually coming out of high school, I ended up going to music school and I wanted to make sure that my degree was not just a degree in, in music. So I have it, uh, I looked at music education as just a, a broader way to kind of have a degree in composition and education and, and did that. And, you know, as a working musician and trying to be out there, I took a job as a, as a teacher and realized like for that, like, again, these things happen kind of, some of them are accidental, some of them are on purpose, but like doing, being an elementary school music teacher is the heart, still to this day, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It's, and it's harder than any meeting I've ever been to. It's like, you want to, you want to go through a classroom of, of elementary school band? No. There's no meeting you're going to that is that hard. I'm telling you right now. They're, they've got saxophones, they've got clarinets, they've got germs, they're spitting everywhere. There's oh, kids with drums. Yeah. And there's 30 of them and there's one of you and you're in a gym, like somewhere in some school on your own. That is, you're, there's no sales pitch. There's no meeting I've been to that's, that's, and you can never mail that in. They will eat you alive. All right. So like I did that for my first year of school while I was playing out and rehearsing every night in advance. So I, I was coming in, having been out until God knows when in the morning and then doing that at eight in the morning. So I quickly realized that, that this is, this isn't going to fly. And this is the early days of finding jobs online. I found a job working at a sheet music publisher in New York and it was, you know, it was 
and moved to the city and, and took a job selling sheet music. It was my first sales job and, and it was easier than teaching, but it was, it was, I was trying to figure, I was trying to find my way. I was trying to find my way to be successful as, as a, as a musical entrepreneur, you know, and being, and, and you look at, I'm certainly not you know, Jay-Z or anything, right? Where he's clearly able to launch a fashion line or record label, an amazing rap record. Like he's, he's doing stuff like that. I eventually landed at Sony Music and saw a job posting on the wall for, I was just trying to write music, do everything I could and saw a job posting on the wall for a sales job and new technology. So this is like 1999, got that job because the guy's wife was a teacher. And he's like, if you can teach a class, you can, you can do sales. And, and he took a flyer on me, had no experience. And I, I had a lot of success there selling desktop marketing solutions for that Sony, from a company Sony's new technology group had acquired. And that's when I started to make the transition into new technology while still being in a band and doing all that stuff and writing a lot of music. And then the person who was running that division in 2002 started Optimost, which was the first A-B testing company. Again, I knew nothing about it. I didn't know anything about multivariate testing or experimental design. I taught myself HTML because I wanted to build a website for my band. And that was the only way you could do it. I had registered some domains and started with two other people, you know, starting Optimost and was still writing music for TV ads and other things while starting the A-B testing company. And, and that's, that's where Veritonic was born. I mean, that's where like, you know, these entre- it was an entrepreneurial story where I... And I knew I wanted to be kind of doing my own thing. And that's why I didn't go in back to teaching or I didn't go work at like, you know, doing sales at a radio station, which was my alternative at the time. I knew I went to the small, my instinct was to go to the small company and credit to my wife for supporting me. We weren't married yet, but you know, she was just like, whatever, give it a shot. (laughs) You know, and like, like, okay. And it was for a lot less money, but we did it. And that's where I learned how to start a technology company from Mark Walken, who was the founder of Optimist. I also was still writing music for TV while doing A-B testing, which is the genesis for Veritonic. Because who the, who's doing those two things? And I got into an argument about something I'd written and said, you know, what if you only had data to support this decision? And it was actually my first million dollar account at Optimist was testing multivariate, doing multivariate testing on the forms for Bank of America. So we would test you know, different headlines, different button, different image, and then generate all the different versions and see what worked better. And I had written an ad for a TV spot with like a, a young female, like opening a checking account or whatever. And I thought it was heartfelt. They said it was melancholy. And <laughs> I was like, I was just amazed by like such small things making statistically significant differences that seemed ridiculous. Like a syntax on a, on a webpage can make a statistically significant difference. Uh, whether, it says, whether it says click here or buy now or where the button's green or grad or how if you move this from here to here. And then I was thinking to myself, well, wait a second, like that piece of music in that ad is, is more influential than anything on that form that no one's that's subconscious at best. So people are barely paying attention to that, you know? And so like, that's where, where I kind of had the idea and, and that you talked to me earlier about persistence. I didn't let that go, right? I have lots of good ideas <laughs> or lots of ideas, I should say. It's a better way to think of it. But I, that one stuck with me and I, and I held on to it for, from 2006, it was when we, Optimus was acquired in 2007. Yeah, I had that idea probably in 2002, but even when Optimist ended, I knew it wasn't the right time to start that company. I did a whole nother business in subscription commerce through some people that I knew and then, then started Veritonic in 2015. So I had that idea for 13 years. How come, uh, how come at that time you knew it wasn't the right time? And 
was it difficult for you to hold off or you just knew it wouldn't work at that point? Well, running Optimost was, you know, like being at Optimost, like when it was the three of us and then kind of being a big part of that company as, as it went through an acquisition and, and then that company got acquired. So it went on for a bit. Like that was all consuming. You know, that was, and it felt like my baby. Like I felt a sense of ownership at Optimost given it was just the three of us for two years and we, we effectively bootstrapped that company. Like I felt real ownership there. And that's another thing, again, entrepreneurial lessons. If, if, if someone's still listening, you know, here, like wherever you're going to work, if you're not, if you're not the CEO or the founder of that company, make sure that you are either passionate enough about the people or the vision or some, it can't be a, something that's just like a job for you. Like you have to feel like a, a, a true and, and hopefully deep sense of ownership of that company for some reason. And for me, I wasn't passionate about multivariate testing. But because it was, it was me, Mark, and Lance, and, and Mark and Lance really took me under their wing, right? Like they gave me this chance, much like my parents gave me the chance at private school, much like the person at Sony gave me that first sales job. They, I've had, been fortunate for someone said, I'm going to take, take a chance on that person. I felt like I was, it was my company, right? Because of, because of them. They, they gave me that chance. They gave me that sense of ownership. They offered that to me. And I think like at my second company, I didn't necessarily have as much of that. And that, that definitely made it more of a grind. Now I'm persistent. I'll go <laughs> no matter how I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to find a way, but it, you ideally want that to feel organic and, and, and kind of feel that it's part of you uh, in that way. And so like Optimus gave me that sense of ownership. And I knew also deep down that I wasn't ready to, to be a, a founder yet. That was the real reason. You know, I think I would have probably tried the idea at any point, even though the technology hurdle would have been really difficult. I, wasn't ready to, to like found a company and run a company yet. I, I don't think that I was, I, it's one of the things you just kind of know when you know, I was, wasn't quite mature enough going through the second company after Optimost and working with a, with a first time founder CEO there gave me a, a seat in the car with somebody like who was going through it all the first time in a way that, that gave me access to those pieces of myself that gave me the confidence that, okay, this is, this is what, this is what I could do, not do. This is what, this is, these are the traits in me that are going to be helpful. Like it gave me that access. So I think going through that now on the, you know, you're going to learn on the job somewhere on this stuff. And I think that the, the, I'm learning on the job every day at Veritonic now. So it's like, you know, you're still trying to figure this stuff out, but I think that that was part of it. But I think the idea combined with, but mainly it was more me. I think if I felt like I was ready to do it, I would, I would have pushed the idea. Uh, Cause it's not about, I'm sure someone on this podcast has said this a hundred times. There's lots of good ideas. You know, the idea isn't, isn't, isn't what makes the company. It's, it's, the, it's the team. Yeah. Uh, almost always. There's no doubt. You know, it's so funny, even just thinking about ideas, good ideas. And you have someone who's like, I want to share an idea with you, but will you send, sign an NDA? And I'm like, I don't ask people for it. If you take this idea and you put the effort, energy, whatever it is behind it, same thing, go do it. Because, you know, there's no... Right. That's what the secret sauce is. Yes, you have to have an idea, a good idea. It has to work. But to your point, it's, it's like you said, your persistence and your effort. So tell me about starting Veritonic and what that was like and how you knew you were ready and, and how you launched it. Yeah, so Veritonic is an interesting concept. And, and in some ways, you know, the idea of quantifying 
human response to sound is is a is a kind of a big idea. It's it's not it's not like a small thing, and it it can take a lot of shape. There's a lot of applications for that, right? You know, you could you could use that for a lot of different reasons. If you knew how somebody felt when they heard something, there's there's a whole bunch of areas where you could apply that information. And so for me, I'm coming from the marketing technology. I'm coming from a world where you know ad tech and martech. Those are technologies and methodologies and frankly a, a network of, of people as both colleagues and, and clients and partners that I'm familiar with. So what is the application for that in the marketing universe? And so I was very focused on music for television because that was the genesis for me. And I also knew that a third time around, the team is, the cliche is definitely true. The team matters the most here. And in also what I did have this, at this point I had access to some investors. And so through the first two companies, I had a little bit more of a network of venture capital investors and, and angel investors. And so I was able to stress test the idea with that network. And that for me was the first step. Let me talk to Mark, the founder of Optimus, who's an angel investor about this. Would he invest? Let me talk to my colleague, Andrew Eisner, who I worked with at Optimus for six years. Like, would he join this company? And kind of seeing like through that network, like do people, one, am I able to communicate it in a way that they, where they understand it? Uh, and two, are smart people who've had success willing to get involved? And that's a, that was for me as much about recruiting them as it was about validating what I was feeling, right? And having that, that network of people that you trust and not just, you know, like is, is a big part of it. So there's, there's a host of people, both who I knew very well and some who I didn't know very well who I felt were like good people to talk to this idea about. So in 2015, as I was thinking about leaving Order Groove, I started to have conversations just casually at first about, hey, what do you think of this? Or if, if we were to try to do this, how would you do it? And once that kind of close network was kind of on board, then it was like, okay, well, let's, let's go do this. And, and that, that was in, started in the beginning of 2015. And, and we had a basic use case and kind of a prototype idea for how we were going to do this for music for a TV ad. And we, we knew kind of how we wanted to conduct the experiments, like how we wanted the methodology to work. And then we just knew that like we could do the analysis without, and that's another great entrepreneurial lesson. You don't have to build, don't build it. <laughs> don't completely build it. Like provide the value in whatever way possible. And then once you've done that, then you can start to think about so you know, we had what I call the Fenway Park scoreboard, you know, which is if, if you're yeah. a baseball fan, there's a guy in the wall at Fenway Park <laughs> who goes and puts the number manually in the, in the, in the scoreboard. Yeah. Like we can have a basic interface that looks like software, but let's go run this test. Let's evaluate the music for the TV ad and let's do this in a scalable way. Let's do this in a scientific way that's going to lead to predicting how someone feels when they hear something. Let's do all that stuff. But in the near term, let's just, when we get the information, let's, put the numbers manually in the scoreboard. And most importantly, let's figure out if we're delivering information that, that is valuable to somebody. And for us, it was, can you make a decision about what music to use in the ad? And can that be quantitative? And that's really what's why Veritonic on some level has to exist. Like there has to be a way to quantify what sound does when you use it. And that could be an audio logo. That could be a podcast ad. That could be a piece of music. It could be voice. But those are big parts of, of the corporate communication strategy for marketing and advertising, there needs to be somebody out there providing data 
for those decisions because every other marketing decision is data-driven. So those, that was the, the other premise that I had was, one, audio is important and is very powerful. There's a lot of science that supports that. The other is data-driven decision-making is at the core of marketing and advertising. And the internet demonstrated that if it wasn't true already. And so in starting the business, I knew it was grounded. I wasn't asking somebody to take a leap from where they were, right? No one's going to say what you hear doesn't matter. Although many, many people do, (laughs) but you would think they wouldn't. And no one's going to say that they're going to make a decision. They want to make a decision without data. Although many people do. And that, you know, so the lesson there was it has to be totally indisputable and really need to exist. And you'll still get no nine out of 10 times, but it has to be something that's grounded in, in some fundamental truth. Yeah. What were some of those initial, I mean, you're talking about some of them now and in people, it's incredible because you think about music and music brings up feeling and feeling no matter what you do in my mind decides what you do. There's, there's no doubt about that. Right. And what were some of those initial challenges in the first couple years of Veritonic where, or were there, was there a time that you thought, you know what, maybe we're not going down the right path. Maybe, maybe I need to change things. No, there were no challenges. No. <laughs> took well, you're the first guy you. ever on uh, this <laughs> podcast to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like you know it's like the i think the interesting thing that we we saw that was different from my first two companies was was how dramatically the market conditions shifted as it relates to the perception of our north star and that's something that i, I definitely didn't expect just as as a whole like when we were raising that angel round if i said the word music we were done, like out of the room. So I had to be like founding team with success, data-driven decision-making, like all these different things. And then I'd put put the four audio part, like, you know, after hopefully they were sold already. And we saw that until for the first three years of the company. So, and also for getting clients, like, you know, we, we just have to find the marketing team that was fighting about the music in the TV ad, which wasn't, that was actually wasn't hard to do. Cause if I ask somebody how they choose the music for their TV ad, nobody's happy. At least nobody, nobody's like, happy. they're choosing. Yeah. Yeah. Like they either want like our very first client, which came from one of our angel investors, a commercial real estate person who I met here in Connecticut, who put small amount into our, into our angel round, knew somebody at Subway. And I walked into Subway and asked, and, and the guy who actually works at Veritonic now, Justin, it's like he wanted like, he's a music guy. He listens to Bonnie Vare and all this stuff. And they're using, you know, stock audio and the Subway ads. And he's like, this is ridiculous. And all he wanted was something to say he was right. So like we kind of, that's, that was that piece. But as the market shifted, you're still dealing with the audio in the context of video there. And when you're fundraising, you're still dealing with something that's this, this kind of stepchild of, of the medium. And there's a whole bunch of video kind of solutions there. Like it just doesn't, it's, it, it, it's hard to say this is a billion dollar idea in there. And then what happened is, is the audio first world started to occur. We went from what's a podcast to people looking for podcast companies to support. But we went through a whole bunch of cycles and, and worked. We didn't test our first audio ad until three years into the business. Right? So like it was a huge chance. So we did, there was a point though there where that happened where like we started to wonder, is this a, is this, 
quantifying human response to sound seems like a big, broad, billion-dollar, VC-supportable idea, but like music in a TV ads, maybe not, right? So like, because you start to get into a subset of marketing and a subset of of the audio universe. And, and so like, once that shift happened, we had to really, and I hate, the word pivot gets used in a lot of different ways. Uh, and stereoty- it's like, it's like disruption. It's like the, the random startup words. But like, it was really more like we had to evolve our business because we didn't want to give up doing music and TV ads. But we also wanted to start understanding how do we work with audio advertising now that everyone has AirPods, podcast advertising is growing, streaming audio is being successful, Spotify at IPO. Like there was a lot of things, AirPods. There's a bunch of factors that, that made it a reality. And as we were starting to get into, just starting to get to 2019, 2020, that, was, that head, massive headwind was starting to become a tailwind. Then COVID happened in March, and, and that became a complete hiccup for like a couple months. And that was right as we were trying to raise a series A. So that was hard timing. But I think like to that end, like you have to be understanding, you can't lose focus of your North Star unless you're going to completely change the business. You have to think about how the market is shifting. And so I didn't, I didn't know those things were going to exist. I there's no way I could have known what, what a smart speaker was in 2015 or, or that podcast advertising would be a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar thing. There's no way I could have known that at that time. And so the question was, how could our core IP, how could uh, what we're building and how could our mission apply to those situations? And we're doing that now. We're still doing that now because the, you know, the universe is still changing. How were you able to navigate that? You said something very interesting where you had a business, right? Which was core to television, audio television, but you see this world changing. You see this incredible opportunity, the Spotify's, you see everything you're talking about. As a CEO and running the business, how do you balance between making sure you're you're not going out of business, you have clients, and also capitalizing on what could be billions of dollars? Right, that's been I would say at Veritonic, my and continues to be like my biggest one of my biggest challenges. I think the the first two businesses that I was a part of were effectively point solutions or. A-B testing, which was not as broad as web analytics, uh, subscription commerce, which was not as broad as e-commerce platform. Yeah, I didn't, we didn't build demandware. We built <laughs> a subscription commerce. We didn't build Omniture. We built Optimist. You know, so like, I think the, at Veritonic, I've tried to have that mindset of like, okay, how do we develop a platform? Right? And how do we serve an audience and a customer through their kind of vision? How do we become the audio piece to somebody's research stack, right? So there's some things. So I guess the short answer to that question is you have to pick some things that are, that are core to you. Audio is core to us. We didn't pivot into video when we were testing. Like we could have easily said, we had plenty of times people ask us, can you do this for video? And that was something that was like, okay, we're not, we're going to be an audio company. And, and that was a hard thing to commit to, especially from 2015 to 2018 when audio was a bad word. So sometimes you have to stick to your guns, but we were, we were not unwilling to look at audio advertising or look at raid terrestrial radio or, or to look at, at uh, voice instead of music and start transcribing what's being said. Like, these are all things that we, you know, we didn't think about. So like, those are, you kind of have to think about what your core values are, what your, what your core mission is and think about, does this apply to that? And does it serve your customer at another stage? And that's, 
that's a hard thing to do. I, I struggle with that today. Like, cause you have to say no to things. Uh, you can't do it all, but you also can't kind of turn things down. Like if, you know, and, you know, that, that are, that could be good opportunities for the business. And, and I'm sure there are times where we get that wrong, yeah. where we either did something and there were, by the way, we have, a, we're really fortunate here to have a team that's from a culture standpoint, everyone uses the cliche, like, you know, you can't be afraid to fail and all that stuff, which is, is a, it's a cliche because it's true, but the willingness to try things, like some of the tools we built for audio in the context of video were a lot of work. And then we, they eventually were not important. So like that kind of like desire to kind of, uh, to use a gambling analogy, you have to, you have to be able to, to run the business with, with like the kind of inside bets. And then those outside bets, you have to be willing to place those in a different way. And that's where I think my background in sales and having success in, in software sales serve me well, because when you're doing that kind of like enterprise solution selling, much like being a teacher, there's 15 people in the room that are all going to learn differently. They're all going to hear what you say differently. Your job is to connect to all of them. And when you're doing solution selling and you're selling like a, you know, large enterprise deal, there's a bunch of constituents involved from budgeting to procurement, to the person making the decision, to the influencer, and they're all buying the product for different reasons and for different parts of the product. And that approach of being adaptable is important. It's just that, you know, it's that fine line between being adaptable, adaptable and, and losing your conviction or being wishy-washy. And that's, that's, that's a challenge. You have, every day you have to look at that and make sure that you're just hopefully getting it right more than you're getting it wrong. Yeah. You know, you talk about audio, like being a, a dirty word from up until 2018. I mean, we're not, we're talking not that long ago. And then this huge rise, which I think a lot of us heard because of all the big podcast deals and the Joe Rogan show. And, but, but audio really, it's, it's about the, 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 the AirPods and, and realizing that this is going to continue to grow. Right now, when you do look at the business and audio and, and obviously dollars and you see the statistics on what's being spent on advertising, what do you see as the future or, or, or where are you placing some of those bets? Like you said, some might not work out, but, but where do you envision the industry going? Yeah, look, it's, it's like a weird version of the Yogi Berra, it gets late early statement, but it's like a lot of these markets, people are like, well, it's earlier, it's late, or we're, it's, it's early and late at the same time. Because there's aspects of, of the kind of audio story, if you will, right? This kind of, this version of audio, which has been around since the beginning of time, but there was radio in the twenties and all these different things that like came through, through the eighties and and then digital audio and streaming, all these things, you know, like there are aspects that are starting to mature. There's aspects that are still really early and podcasting is still really early, relatively speaking. That said, what I see coming is, is there has to be standards and some baseline infrastructure and data to underpin the state of audio advertising right now. In the same way that without web analytics, we don't have e-commerce or the internet as we know it today. Without, without that happening, there's no way on earth that anything could scale that big. One of the reasons the internet scaled so quickly into such size is it's unbelievably trackable, targeted, and, and it was, there was a ton of friction in doing that. There were free solutions available from people like Google. There were, there were premium solutions available and, and to the point where within seven years, it got the saturation. 
there's thousands of, of software as a service measurement companies, right? Ad tech and marketing tech. Audio is not, doesn't have that yet. And so we're at that stage now where there's got to be something. And you're, you're seeing some of those like Spotify acquiring pod sites, frankly, us being able to raise capital in the way we have is validation that that is, that is required, right? There's no way it can get much bigger without that. So there needs to, and there needs to be a platform and a standard. And then hopefully that's coming from multiple companies to become a standard. You can't just be the one person. Now there's some things like the Nielsen ratings for TV um, or things like that. And, and sometimes that happens in a, in a certain market and that may happen in audio. I don't know. Right. But like, you know, there wasn't like 10 Nielsen's in 1950 measuring TV. It was effectively them. The internet was hundreds of companies. You know, I don't know what audio, maybe it's 10, maybe it's five, maybe it is one. I don't know. If it's one, it's damn well going to be us. But that said, there needs to be something. And I do think it'll be more than one company because it's just, it's a digital world now. I don't think what happened in Nielsen in 1950 is, is yeah. likely. The second thing is there's got to be something that's independent, but you cannot count on. And we learned this in social the hard way with Facebook. And we certainly have learned it from Google with the backlash there, but you cannot have people grading their own homework. You just can't. Again, these, these things are like, when I ask you, does what you hear matter? Of course. You say things like, of course, but there's still not like a real kind of st independent standard for this stuff yet. And then the third piece is the market has to, the market has to become more communicative. I think COVID slowed this. I think that's one of the things that's holding back the, kind of the, mm. the first two points I made is when you don't have like a conference that everybody goes to or a thing that everybody's at, because that's when you have 20 conversations in one day. And then you have drinks and you wake up in the morning and have breakfast. And over the course of a couple of days, these kind of like these network kind of things can spread. And I think in the, in the, in the online web only zoom conferences, like that wasn't happening at that pace. And so that's one of the reasons that we started the audio intelligence summit. It was killing me that there wasn't an event where Pepsi, Veritonic and uh, whatever, NPR, Spotify, Pandora, whatever, can all be in the same room talking about audio measurement together and brands can talk to other brands and Spotify can talk to Sirius XM and we can all, and Veritonic can talk to other people. We can all just have this conversation in rapid fire. So we literally made our own event because it just wasn't happening. So I think those three things have to happen. And that's what I see happening over the next couple of years. And then a little downward economic pressure is probably, as much as I don't want it, is probably helpful. Because it forces people, it puts a little bit of, hey, if I don't do this, something bad might happen in their head. And, and I think that's uh, a necessary part of it. I don't, I, in a weird way, COVID didn't create that. Yeah. <laughs> COVID created this like isolationist, everything's economically fine world, which, which is crazy for a pandemic, but that's what happened. It's, it's true when you think about it. And just the point of, funny enough, people looked at, initially with the pandemic, it was going to slow down podcasting and, and growth. And, but what you said was, was really interesting about the fact of not being able to be at conferences, events, communicating where you are coming together. That really, and we know, we know the opposite happened with podcasting where more people were listening, but, but you're right about having to have a group or, or different people in the room speaking about it and understanding it because of the industry and because of the growth. And, you know, I want to ask you before I let you go, thinking back to growing up in, in North Jersey, and I have to ask you this question, if it could be Veritonic, multi, which I'm sure one day will happen, multi, multi, 
billion dollar business you build off of sound, or if it could have been Bon Jovi, Springsteen, and Simonelli. What are you choosing? <laughs> That's what you're going to hit me with? <laughs> That's what I'm going to hit you with. The, thir- the third Jersey legend or the legend okay. of the multi-billion dollar sound. Uh, no, no, no. I'm going with Springsteen visit. and Bon Jovi. Yeah, no, no question. <laughs> You know, it's it's uh that's just that's just too good to pass up. <laughs> <laughs> I love your honesty, man. I love it. And you know what? Maybe you could do both. It's never too late. Hey, hey, you know what? I'm 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 gonna try. I like uh, it. You know, and I think that's uh like any good entrepreneur, I think like I'm always you start at zero every day, right? So I'm gonna go and 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 go after it. And I think the hard part, I think as you age, there's some benefits to it being the third company. Yeah. Right, because I knew the people, I had the network, it de-risked a lot of things. The other side of that coin that I think if there's any older entrepreneurs listening to this, um, and I'm not that old yet, but you know, you you're a little little getting there, you know, is is you can't you can't lose that curiosity, you can't lose that openness as you become more risk adverse. And and the hard thing that I have to stare down the barrel of every day is is supporting a family with with four children. I mean, going out there and not clamming up and 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 Gripping, gripping the bat or, you know, golf, yeah. golf club would be a great, I'm not squeezing the heck out of that golf club every day. Cause that's going to be bad for all the employees that I feel personally responsible for, responsible for all the investors who've backed this, all the people in it. And that same open mind is, is it, yeah, yeah. Maybe I am the next Springsteen. It's not, it's not off the table yet until like I'm it. dead. And maybe, nope. maybe if I die, then, I'll, then my music will get discovered and I'll pull a Mozart on you and yeah. still come back and get you. Yeah. Um, but the only problem you'll, you'll never know. Yeah, I always hated that because you, you never knew. You never know. But like, what's, but you know what? I wouldn't put it. I'd by. still take it. I, I know. It would be amazing. Maybe they both happen. So, uh, yeah. Scott, thanks so much for joining yeah. us, man. It's been a pleasure. Uh, really enjoyed it. And best of luck and hope you continue on your growth in both your own music and, of course, with Baritonic. Thank you, Robert. Absolutely love talking to you anytime. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.